All right, let's get on with the sermon here. Uh, rather than going on in Zechariah uh, where we left off, I wish to address the same series that I talked about during the Days of Unleavened Bread. It goes along very well with what John has been coming up with the last sermon or two or three, and uh, perhaps as a capstone to the two sermons that I gave during the Days of Unleavened Bread, and John and I talked it over and thought it would be better to suspend Zechariah for the moment and finish this topic. Uh, well, I don't know that it can be finished, but at least pursue it further at this point because it ties in so well with what I recently talked about. Now, as you may recall, uh, I talked about overcoming. Overcoming is the one instruction given in common to all the churches and all the ages. Whether you perceive the church is going from Paul and Peter's time down to today, the last being Laodicean, or whether you recognize that they all do exist today, overcoming is the one watchword that they all have in common. Now, during Passover, we examined two impediments to overcoming. <clears throat> the first was self-deception, in which we hide from the real truth about ourselves. The second was self-justification, in which, once the real truth about ourselves begins to come out, we begin to try to justify or make excuse for our shortcomings and sins when they are revealed to us. So these are two great deterrents to overcoming, self-deception and self-justification. We would do almost anything to keep from having to change, which is very, very difficult for us to do. Human, change, human beings generally change pretty slowly. We may have to speed up the process. And I hope that what I have to say today uh, will reflect God's attitude and word about this and perhaps help us to make the changes that we are not making because of the next problem, the next impediment to overcoming. What we will address today is what comes as a result of these two other deterrents to overcoming, it is the sum or the product of them. You see, once we've deceived ourselves and been justified by some excuse, any shortcomings that might still be obvious, we will have become the hardest shelled nut on the tree. We will have entered into the evil and abysmal spiritual condition that is likely the very hardest to identify and to overcome. And that, in a word, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the sum of self-deception and self-justification. Self-righteousness is an illusion or a delusion of true righteousness. It's a cheap sham, a vain show, a total deception. It's a removal from reality and a thin veneer of real Christianity. It is spiritual self-satisfaction, or I'm okay, or in the vernacular of today, looking good there. Now we wouldn't say we're looking good, but I will show you by the fruits that has to be the way we look at ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as being good and being okay. Or, to put it another way, in the church today, I'm Philadelphian, therefore I have it made. <clears throat> I'm spiritually rich, I have the knowledge that I need, and I'm okay. A simple equation here might be, self-deception combined with self-justification produces self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is the setting of our own standard as opposed to the standards of God's Word as stated in the Bible. And we'll see how this applies to us. We'll see how we do it to ourselves. We accomplish it by allowing ourselves latitude to think wrongly or, our, or conduct ourselves wrongly in selected areas of life. Our pet sins, our hidden sins, our private thoughts, our darker side, as some psychologists might call it today, while at the same time maintaining an outside show of righteousness. 
allowing sin within and appearing righteous without. Now let's go to Matthew 23 and see this attitude put starkly before us by Jesus Christ. Matthew 23, and I'll begin in verse 8. <clears throat> but be you not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all you are brothers. So ministry, laity, we're all brothers. None is to be exalted above the others. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. In a spiritual sense, I can call my father dad. And in one sense, in the same way that Paul did, we can call himself uh, the father of the Gentile Christians and says, call them his little children. In a sense, it was a familial thing, but it was not a rabbinic thing. It was not an office where he held himself above them, but he was talking about he teaching them, and that put him in the, the same sense as a father teaching children. But it was not a religious title that he used to wield power over others. Now these people had exalted themselves that he's talking to here. The setting is the Pharisees. Verse 10, neither be called you masters, for one is your master, even Christ, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And these people were not willing to serve others. They did not have a serving attitude. They had a selfish me first attitude. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. This is a law. This is a rule. This is like gravity. God will abase those who exalt themselves. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. That also is axiomatic. Now, he was saying this to people that we would term self-righteous. I don't think he used those words here in addressing them, but it is the attitude behind it. We call them self-righteous. Why? Because of their standards, standards which were of themselves, not according to Scripture. Scripture had been added to or taken from for them to come up with their own standard of righteousness. And it was in a self-exalting standard. Now what does he say to them? Verse 13, but woe! Now when God says woe, he means woe, as in the threat of death. Read about the three woes back in Revelation. Many people die when those woes hit this earth. So when God says woe, it means woe in terms of terrible trouble coming for you, and perhaps it also means woe in terms of a horse, though that uh, is not implied here, where you better stop and take stock of yourself. That's what he was telling them. Hang on a minute here. You're in trouble. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves. Now he's talking to people here who were self-satisfied, who thought they were righteous. And he is telling them, you are not righteous. In spite of your best definition of that term as applied to yourself, you people are not righteous. In other words, they were totally self-deceived about themselves and had come to believe they were righteous. Their view of themselves was not at all what Christ's view of them was. Does that sound familiar? We'll get to something that is about the end-time churches very soon with the exact same attitude. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, for a pre and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. All their prayers meant absolutely nothing. They went up to God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Hypocrisy is a big part of self-righteousness. For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. We have people today in the greater church of God who are compassing sea and land to make one proselyte. Is it being done out of self-righteousness? Maybe we'll see a little later on how this sits in. Woe to you, third time, you blind guides would say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. 
You fools and blinds for whether it's greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies it. They had their mind too much on the physical and the, the, the trapments, or entrapments, I guess you could say, of the physical things in the temple, the physical things around them, and their own clothing, their own decorations, rather than the holiness of God which sanctifies the temple. If we take the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and satisfy ourselves with being in the church and in the right branch of the church, whatever that might mean today, and forget about the Holy One who sanctifies the church and who sanctifies us, and forget His standards, setting our own standards sometimes. Let's move on down. Verse 23, Woe again to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For they were tithing, but they were forgetting the weightier matters of the law. They were counting seeds and being so righteous in their own minds about counting seeds. Do we do that at Passover time? Do we count crumbs and be so assiduous about getting every one of the crumbs out of our house but we forget the weightier sins in our lives? We miss the whole point because we're so busy decrumming. I'm not against putting leavening out, don't get me wrong. But let's not miss the whole point. Verse 24, you blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Notice this now, woe to you scribes, another woe. And Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. So they put on a Saturday best exterior. They put on their finest clothes to go before the people. But inside there was a lot of evil and foulness. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Here's another analogy. He really gets strong. Woe again to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! We don't like to be called hypocrites, do we? And they didn't like it either. For you are like whited sepulchers. Have you been by and seen some of the tombs of people who build a huge marble mausoleum for themselves? And it's all white, polished marble on the outside. But take a sniff inside. Which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And he goes on and on. Woe again, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, but you're lying and cheating and stealing and so on. Verse 33, he calls them serpents, and a generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Now we're beginning to realize what God thinks of self-satisfaction and self-righteousness, and us setting our own standard as opposed to his standard, the word of God. They thought they were being so careful to add things to it to make it better, to be even more righteous than scripture in that sense. But it didn't work. He didn't like it at all. And then they stoned the prophets and so on, and all of those who came to tell them what their problem was. Of course, we aren't Pharisees, so this doesn't apply to us, and I don't know why I'm bothering to read it. Pharisees were just the leaders of the Jews. They have nothing to do with us today, do they? Yes. The commonest spiritual attitude in the church today is exactly the same, and I think I can prove it. The exact same attitude these people had. You'll find it back in Revelation 3.18. The commonest sin is self-righteousness, spiritual pride, smugness, one-upmanship, and another thing that is sometimes hard to recognize it's false humility, <laughs> humility, false humility, which is also self-righteousness. It's sometimes evidenced by a down-in-the-dumps, dog-eared, roll-over-and-pee-on-ourself attitude that is a cover-up for a, an inner, self-assured, prideful assessment of ourselves. 
In other words, God just has to want me because I am so humble. I am so contrite. I, I, am, I am so weak. And there can be a lot of pride in that. Down south they say we're, we're purr and humble. They want me to say poor and humble. But purr and humble. And proud of it. Because there's an awful lot of pride in acting humble. Now to those people who have that attitude truly tremble in fear before the word of God. Or is it just an attitude to make themselves appear poor and humble and contrite, while at the same time they are very proud of their religion and the way they live and so on? Whole Protestant churches feed on this false humility. Now let's go to Revelation 3.18. I quoted it prematurely, but I think we should go back and read it. <clears throat> We're all very, very familiar with it. We've had our nose stuck in it a lot lately. And God is going to continue to stick our nose in it until we get past self-righteousness into his standard of righteousness. Now, here is a whole group of people at the end, and it is the prevailing attitude today, the last church, if you're putting them in order through the ages, before the end of this age. Verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, speaking spiritually, of course, and know not, that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's almost the same terminology that he used back to the Pharisees, isn't it? So there's a definite tie-in between Matthew 23 and the attitude espoused there and Revelation 3 about people at the end time. People who assess themselves to be okay. And it is expressed modernly, I'm a Philadelphian, the rest of you are Laodicea. In other words, I'm okay, the rest of you are not. I'm going to a place of safety. I'm going to the kingdom of God. The rest of you are going into the tribulation. Now, is that a prideful self-assessment or not? And does that turn a Philadelphian into a Laodicean or not? because of the very attitude of self-exaltation and the putting down of others. This self-satisfaction can be expressed, as I just mentioned, or we could say, I'm good enough for government work, I'm good enough for God's government, I guess. We have the right government, we're okay, some say in the church today. Now, what is the point of this exercise in futility? The real point is, maybe I'm not as good as God, but I'm better than y'all. Comparing ourselves among ourselves. All right. We do not generally think of ourselves as self-righteous, do we? I mean, you know, I can take a poll here. How many of you feel that you are truly self-righteous? I probably wouldn't, if you were honest, get too many hands raised right now. We haven't thought of ourselves that way, have we? Well, I think we will before we're done here. So then how do we discern self-righteousness? Well, in others, it's easy, isn't it? We can spot it. That person's self-righteous. That person's hypocritical. It's easy to hang that label, label on someone else. We can say they're vain, they're proud, they're smug, they're overbearing, they're opinionated, they're know-it-all, they don't live it, they're hypocritical. It's easy to pigeonhole people that way. Isaiah 65.5 is a real just summation of this attitude. And it is an attitude that exists today in the church, and that's why Isaiah talked about it, because Isaiah is an end-time prophet. Isaiah 65.5, which say, Stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense, unto their bosom. There is an attitude in the church today, whatever group we're in, that we are better than the others. That is abominable. 
That is why people point the fingers at other people, at other groups, at other organizations. It's one of the main reasons they will not associate with others. Because we don't want to get the dirt of their attitudes on our nice clean clothes. We are holier than you. We are better than you. Our group is better than yours. And this attitude of pride does not produce unity, but disharmony. Now, we don't have to agree on every point. That isn't my point. We will disagree on some points, all of us. No two human beings have ever agreed on everything. And you'll find it in the New Testament between Paul and Peter and Barnabas and Mark and various ones. It is the attitude that is the problem. We disagree, therefore I am better than you. My opinion is more important than yours. I have to esteem my own opinion better than yours. As opposed to Paul's instruction of First Thessalonians or second, wherever it is. This is, in a nutshell, the I'm Philadelphia and you're Laodicean approach. All right, in others, <clears throat> it's easy to see this. But more importantly, how do we recognize it in ourselves? Or did we even look? Most are not willing to look. I hope that we are, that is, thee and me, those who are hearing this. I hope we're willing to look. All right, what are some clues? Assess yourself. Are you teachable or unteachable? Are you hard-necked, hard-headed, or are you easily chastened and corrected? Because there a frightful stiff neck there that doesn't want chastening and correction. One who knows all the answers and wants to give all the answers. Or are we willing to listen to others and perhaps learn? Hasty to hear and slow to speak. Or are we just the opposite? What if someone saw something that they thought was wrong in you? Would people be afraid to approach you about it? Would they be afraid to try to correct you? I mean, average people. I don't mean there are a few people around who want to correct everything and everybody, and they, you better well listen to me. But I'm just talking about us as average people. Are you easily entreated? Or would people fear to approach you for fear of your reaction, for fear of your justification? What about you if you see something in someone else? Most people we would approach with great trepidation. It's hard for us to correct someone else because we fear their reaction. And usually correctly so. Because we probably will be rebuffed. And excuses or justifications will be made if we seek to correct someone. We have to analyze ourselves here because these are some of the keys or clues to show whether we have a level of self-righteousness or not. Do we generally seek answers from others? And are we really listening when they give them? Or are we formulating the correct answer to straighten them out, even as we hear what they have to say? Are we clean in our own eyes? Are we quick to justify ourselves, quick to come up with an excuse when people might approach us and say, hey, there's something wrong with you? Do you cover yourself instead of admitting error? Do you at times find yourself acting Christian when what is really in your heart and mind is wrong? There you're bordering on or wallowing in hypocrisy. When you try to put on an outward show, of being okay when inside there are things that really are wrong. Let's go to James 3 for a moment, and we'll see some of these categories listed. James 3, and I want to pick it up here in verse 18. Oh, excuse me, 15 to start with. James 3, 15. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. 
For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. If we were truly righteous, we wouldn't have envying and strife and confusion and every evil work. But if we are self-righteous, we're putting on a show, but underneath there are some things that are wrong, and the fruits of how we're living show in our relationships. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, clean, right, not evil, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace is not an automatic thing. Peace is a skill. Peace is a product of the fruit of God's Spirit working in us and through us. And we have to make peace. But we tend to want to make war with others. Whence come the wars and fighting among us, as James said. Come they not from the evil and the rot that is within in spite of our Christian appearance on the outside. Here's another clue and a principle. A truly righteous person likely does not feel righteous at all. If he's truly becoming righteous, he recognizes the great gulf between himself and God, his thoughts and standards. Paul was a man who was becoming a righteous man. What was his personal assessment of himself? Oh, wretched man that I am. And he had been an apostle for many years when he said that. That was his own self-assessment of his spiritual condition. Why did Christ look to the publican instead of to the, the sinner? I mean, to the sinner instead of the publican. Because at least the sinner recognized his sin, whereas the publican did not. He was so self-deceived and so self-justified and therefore so self-righteous and self-satisfied that he did not see the real sin in himself. Hebrews 12, we're very familiar with, so I won't go back there, where it says, Despise not the chastening of God. Yet we see today the whole church basically despising, ignoring, and further, mostly not even recognizing the chastening of God for what it is. Or they think it's for someone else, not themselves. We've been through a lot of scriptures and lamentations and all the other prophets to show that God is angry with the church, that God is scattering the church, that the church is sinful, and yet we have whole organizations today who will say we're Philadelphian, and this assessment automatically says whether they would put it in words or not, we're okay. Therefore, they are despising the chastening of God. Now, we as individuals, and as an organization here, Church of the Great God, if that's not take on that attitude, or if we have it, we'd better expunge it from our thoughts and minds and personalities and characters, and not despise this chasing. Some people say, I love the Father, but despise the mother of the Church. Galatians 4.26, showing that the Church is the mother of us all. Can we disrespect and despise one parent and still love the other? Does bitter water and sweet come out of the same stream? James says no. But people can seem so sweet and lovable, can't they? They can seem so righteous. But is that the real them? Or is it the real you? Or the real me? That is the question. All right? How do we find out what the real me is? Pressure is the key. How do people react when it's their wallet? How do they act when it's a business deal? How do they act when their children are accused of not being little lambs? Is it with pride? Is it with disdain for how someone else might try to help them with their children? 
What about in traffic when you get cut off? What about under pressure? Where is the real you? Does the sweetness go away? Replaced by contention, self-justification, anger, pride, lashing out, accusation. When our personal space is invaded, are we really humble? Or do we get red-necked or red-faced pretty easy? Or easily, I should say. Is it real humility that we put out there, or is it a thin veneer covering dead men's bones inside our minds and emotions that comes out under pressure? Will the real me stand up, in other words? Now, I say pressure changes this, and I use a few physical little examples there. But let's look at what God is doing with the church. He's putting enormous pressure on the church today. He is sorting the righteous from the self-righteous. He's sorting those who are putting on a show and playing church from the truly righteous from the inside out, who have cleaned up the dead men's bones inside. So we're getting rid of the evil which proceeds forth from a man. Matthew 25 shows a category of people who will have thought themselves righteous when Christ comes. Matthew 25. Let's begin in verse 34. I think I used this in the last sermon, in fact, or the one before. I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. He's saying to the righteous, from verse 34, naked and you clothed me. Then shall the righteous answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed you or thirsty and gave you drink? In other words, they, because they had changed the inside, were willing to help and serve and give to others and take care of Christ and his brethren and thought nothing of it because it had been internalized as a part of their character and they didn't even look upon it as being good works because their right hand did not know what their left hand was doing. But you have these who were trying to act righteous and who weren't taking care of each other and he said, when you didn't take care of others, you didn't take care of me. Now we get down here to the bare bones of what real righteousness is about as opposed to self-righteousness. You didn't do it to the least of my brethren, therefore you didn't do it to me. We can say our relationship with God is good, but who are these people? This unwashed filth around me. Not deserving of my time and my energy and my effort and my prayers and my letters and my emails and my phone calls because we're self-absorbed, self-satisfied, and perhaps self-righteous, and so we just don't get around to doing these things. Well, Christ says, I'm going to judge you one way, you judge yourself another way. And my assessment is right, and I hold the keys to life and death. So now what are you going to do? Matthew, Matthew 7, let's go back here and see one more in, in this type of an attitude. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall I enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have a lot of people in God's church today who are saying, Lord, Lord, and the temple of God, the church, the church. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. It doesn't do any good to give him lip service. It's those who do his will. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? and broadcast and sent out booklets, and in your name have cast out demons, and in your name done many, many wonderful works. Let's apply this to ourselves today. And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Well, how was that iniquity? All these things that they were doing that they considered to be good works. They were done. A smug, self-satisfied, prideful, we're the important ones, Manner. They were not done out of a pure love that had been developed as a part of their character, but as a job that had to be done, that made them appear righteous. And God says, I'm not having anything to do with it. So maybe you did do some of these things, but did you do the will of the Father? Can he see himself in you? Was it a self-righteousness based on how well you thought you had to do, or was it based on his standard of conduct as revealed in the pages of the Bible? Many, it says here in verse 22, many will fall short 
having judged themselves acceptable, but God will not find them acceptable. Their own standard for their conduct is below the standard of God. But they thought their standard was high enough. They thought they had done well enough. Paul tells us to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. That is his standard. Is anyone there yet? Well, if we're not there and we're not doing much about it, then we must have set a standard that we feel is acceptable which is below that. And therefore we're not really working at it. Do we find ourselves then trying to appear righteous while not being righteous? This is hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Now it's not wrong to try to look righteous if we are really desperately seeking to be righteous. It's not a shallow, inane thing. In other words, we have to practice acting righteous for it to become a habit and part of our character. That's why we need the law that says thou shalt not kill or steal or murder or commit adultery. Because we have to adhere to that rule until we rise above it to the point that it's part of our character that we wouldn't even dare think of lying, committing adultery, stealing, or whatever. Because we do love our brother as ourselves, and therefore we would not consider doing that to him because we do love him. The real question then is if it is sincere or a pretense. Emotion or feeling bad is not enough. Are we changing? Are we overcoming? Are we reacting differently? To say I am a sinner is only one step in the right direction. It's only a theory unless we specifically identify our sins, which is the next step. Oh yeah, it's easy to say, of course I'm a sinner. The Bible says that we're all sinners, therefore I'm a sinner. But are we willing to dig deeply into our heart and mind and character and find out what our sins are? And then the next step is what are we doing about it? Are we sitting complacently in a chair playing church? Or are we busy? 2 Timothy 3.5 carries this thought on and takes us to another dimension. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Paul says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Do we really accept and latch on to the reality that the Spirit of God was acting, that acting within us can really change us? Or do we just have a form of godliness, a religion, a set of standards that we get from the Bible and water down or add to or whatever, so that it is only a form? Like the Pharisees had the form. They had the white and sepulchre, the clean-looking cup on the outside that had really dirty coffee stains on the inside that no one could see. Let's go from there and tie together with this Romans 12. Romans 12. And let's begin in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, just as you would lay a lamb on an altar and cut its throat. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's holy. He made us. He created us to be holy, so it's reasonable that we become holy. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. His standard, his will, his mind. Now, when you transform something, what do you do to it? Transformers on the power poles, which can take thousands and thousands of volts of electricity and transform it into something usable, 120 that goes into our house. God is saying we have to have a transformation from these thousands upon multiple thousands of volts of evil that pervades our mind and heart. And be transformed into something usable. In other words, he expects change. Continuing in sin denies the power of God to give life or death. It denies his power to save. It's a form that ultimately is a denial of God himself, making him more than nothing more than a spook 
are a figment of the imagination. Because we do not recognize that there is real power to transform us, to change us, so it becomes a form of godliness that denies his power to change, to work in our lives. And we sit back and do nothing thinking that God is powerless to do this. Protestants, for instance, have a form of godliness, but they totally deny his power. They prefer a grace-only religion that does not really require changing conduct or thought. They give up before they even start. They admit they can't be righteous and holy, that they cannot live to the standard of this word, to live by every word of God. And they built their whole religion on that. Accept the Lord and you're saved. They made it easy for themselves. So they deny the power of God to produce the fruit of his spirit. Question, will this gain them salvation? Or is it setting a standard of their own righteousness or a standard of their own? Whereby they delude themselves into thinking they will enter the kingdom of God, but will not. And are we right now in danger of doing the same things ourselves? Being Laodicea in his heart right now, complacent, lackadaisical. Maybe we're waking up. Maybe we've settled back into our chairs and thought we had a good organization, and therefore we're okay, and we're not really being transformed. So that our minds are changed and different than what they were. Not so, Paul. I will show you my faith by my works. He made a commitment to overcome. I will change. Now let's go to Romans 7. We're close here. Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. This is an apostle speaking. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. I know the law is good, but I haven't been fully transformed yet. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he recognized that he wanted to do what was right, and he looked upon the law as holy and just and good, verse 12. But sin was deep within his mind and heart. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So he was struggling with his nature. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. He emphasizes it here. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my might and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. His nature did not lead him to bring every thought into captivity, but to lead him into sin. And then he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is a very despairing passage, very frustrating. Paul must have been feeling it very deeply when he wrote this to these people. But he, did he despair? Did he give up? Did he quit? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that within the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Who will deliver me? See, he didn't have a form of godliness. He believed in the power of God. Jesus Christ will transform me, he said. He recognized what had to be done. He knew God had the power to transform. It wasn't a vain show. He was working hard at overcoming. And he found he often failed. But his was not a form of godliness, but a pragmatic, hard-nosed fight to the finish. And he knew that he would prevail by the power of Christ working in him. And ultimately, it worked. I won't turn back there, but the reference is to 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, where he finally said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. I set my mind, even though I despaired, even though I saw the evil that was within me, I recognized the power of God to transform me, and I have been transformed, and I will be in the kingdom of God. So there's hope for you and me if there was hope for him. 
Now let's look at another good test of whether or not there is self-righteousness in us. Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Does that detect us? Do we see such a lack of being like God that we are diligently fasting, praying, studying, meditating on His ways, thinking about it, or just coasting along? Is our time consumed with the things of God, or do we give Him passing attention as we go on to other interests and allow other things to take our time and our energy and our mind and our consciousness? If we are not hungering and thirsting to bring every thought into captivity, then we have set somehow, subconsciously, a lower standard than that of the works of God. And it is evidenced by our lack of work. Because if we saw in ourselves the great gulf between what we are and what God is, we wouldn't be coasting along if we really wanted to be part of his kingdom. In other words, we're thinking, I must be basically okay. Are we scratching gravel like we'd lost a two-pound gold nugget? Think about yourself. Have you accepted a lower standard? Or are you really scratching gravel? If we're not really scratching at it, brethren, we're still living by our own standard of righteousness and subconsciously think we're okay. That is self-righteousness. Even if we are alert and have waked up and are scratching gravel, there is still a danger. <laughs> so if you say, I'm really working at it, I'm really working at it, perhaps you are. Perhaps you are. And I applaud any who are. But let's notice Romans 10, the next danger that comes upon us. Verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. So there might be some who are scratching gravel to be righteous, but lack the knowledge of what true righteousness is and what God's standard is, and therefore they're not making any headway. See, our own standard can be wrong in both directions. We can be more severe, perhaps, than God himself, as the Pharisees were, or we can become too lax and think, well, this is good enough. We can err in either direction. It's easy, as we pointed to saw in James 1 last time, verse 20, we forget what manner of man we are after looking in the mirror. We look in the mirror of God's Word. Now, if we really see what we are by examining these scriptures and comparing the holiness and the righteousness and the mind of God with our mind, what are the possible responses? When we see, when we get through the self-deception and the self-justification, and perhaps even the self-righteousness, and see that we really do have problems, what are the pitfalls from there? Well, number one, we can deny what we saw, which is the example that James used. We look in the mirror of God's Word, and we walk away quickly, straightway, forgetting what manner of man we are. We walk away from that mirror and complacently continue with life, hoping it will all turn out okay anyway. Or secondly, we say, mercifully, take me as I am. And I can remember years ago saying, well, God's going to have to have a lot of mercy. And what I was trying to do was justify my level of righteousness by saying, God is going to have to have a lot of mercy. Well, now I think for any of us, at any point in time, that is certainly valid. If his mercy didn't endure forever, none of us would make it. But we can't lean on that crutch, is the point I want to make here. We can't use that as an excuse not to, to do what needs to be done. Can we really expect carte blanche mercy with no fruits? But many do that. They're just sitting there depending on mercy. Take me like I am. Protestants use this in one of their hymns. A third way we might go when we look into his word and see 
that we do not measure up to his standards. It's an attitude that probably all have used from time to time, and some use as a way of life. They say, it's not fair. I can't overcome. It's my parents' fault. It's my background. It's my upbringing. It's my nature. I'm this way. So we wallow in self-pity. There's another word with self in front of it. Self-pity and hopelessness. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 now. 1 Corinthians 10. Now my time wise running out. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. These people died in the wilderness. They were at the cusp of going into the promised land, but died there, and the carcasses were strewn in the wilderness. We are on the cusp of going into God's kingdom, very close to that time when it will be set up on this earth. Are we going in, are, or are our carcasses going to be scattered in a spiritual desert and wilderness? Wherefore, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. This goes very well with exalting yourself, and you shall be a base. Do you think you stand? Does much of the church today think it stands? <laughs> there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able. Even though you think you are not up to it, he says he's not going to lay anything on you that you cannot handle. So don't give up and wallow in self-pity, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to perish. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry of self, idolatry of your own assessment of your righteousness, and look in the Word of God and see His standard of righteousness and begin making strides to reach it. As opposed to saying, I can't. I can't. It's too hard. Let's read 2 Corinthians 4. See a little more of Paul's mind on this. 2 Corinthians 4. And I'll begin in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. This echoes what he said about having a form of godliness but denying the power of God. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We take on some of the trials, the troubles, the persecutions, the difficulties that he suffered, and he allows them upon us. Many are the, afflicted, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver us. Through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, I think. On and on it goes. So, some of the problems and distresses and difficulties in life, God has there for a reason, that we might bear in our body the same suffering that he had. And that we might recognize that it has to be by the power of God that we can be transformed to become like he was and is. We cannot afford to do as James 1 pointed out. Forget what manner of man we are. Now, what is the fourth possible reaction once we look into the mirror and see the difference in his standard and ours? Scratch gravel. We're on the cusp of the promised land, like I said. Now, perhaps there are other reactions as well, but those are four that I thought. Four ways to approach it. And the fourth is the only valid one. What were the Pharisees doing? They were trying to carefully keep the letter of the law so they would not go back into captivity, and they were not cognizant of true righteousness and the meaning and intent of the law. They were trying to prevent something as opposed to move forward and accomplish something. As I said before, it's not enough that I not steal from my neighbor or commit adultery. I must come to the point I really love him as I love myself, and don't take from him because I really care for him, not just resist because the law says so. One is a rote following of the law, the other is a full understanding of the intent and the purpose of that law. Whole nations and peoples rewrite history from their own slant to make themselves look good, revisionist history. 
But the final test is really the fruit of our lives. Isaiah 32, 17. Isaiah 32 and verse 17. This one says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace. God says he's going to bring peace in the latter temple. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. You see, you don't have to build this false hope inside if you're truly transforming into righteousness. Because the effect of righteousness is inner peace. Do we live in peace or do we fight in war among ourselves? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. I won't turn back and read those. You're quite familiar with them. But it's the fruits of God's Spirit being manifested in our lives. The peace, the joy, the love, the happiness. And so on. Philippians 1, verse 8. I will turn to this. Philippians 1. I know it's right back here somewhere. Philippians 1. And verse 8, for God is my record, or is, what's her name said in uh, Gone with the Wind, God is my witness, I think. God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ, a deep abiding care for the people. And this I pray, that your love may, yet ab may abound yet more, and more in knowledge, and in all judgment, that they're gaining in these areas, that you may approve things that are excellent, not our standard, but God's standard, the excellent things, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Here is the test. What is our life producing? Look around, look at your relationships with both God and man, for the fruits of God's Spirit being produced there. If we do not measure up to the righteousness of God as defined in Holy Scripture, but are not, uh, and are not earnestly doing something about it, then the chances are mighty high that we are self-righteous. That we are somewhat satisfied with where we are on the spiritual scale as evidenced by our lack of zeal in being transformed. In other words, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. God will judge us by our fruits, not our form of godliness that denies the power thereof and does not overcome. Now, how can Laodicean think it is rich and increased with goods? Maybe I should rephrase that. How can we Laodiceans think we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing when Christ says we are wretched, miserable, poor, that is, spiritually bankrupt, naked and blind? Now, if I say we're wretched, I'm putting us in the same category which Paul assessed himself in. How can Sardis have a name that it is living if he's stone dead in Christ's judgment? I'll tell you how. This is accomplished by deceiving the self, justifying the self, which produces a feeling of self-satisfaction and a veneer of righteousness. A self-righteousness that sees no urgent need to change anything. An attitude that is approaching the Protestant, take me as I am, Lord. Bear in mind that you often feel you can see self-righteousness in others. But in self, it is the hardest sin to detect because you and I have carefully convinced ourselves we are almost okay. As shown by the lack of effort to change. That's the fruit of that attitude. It may be hard to detect that attitude because we would say, oh, I'm not okay. But subconsciously, in our innermost heart, we must have accepted a lower standard because we are not working hard for truly changing. A transformation indicates a totally different individual than what we are and have been. You can teach an old dog new tricks. It is not easy, but it can be done. One of our problems is we use the standard of quote-unquote each other. 
By comparing ourselves among ourselves, we convince ourselves we are okay because we're at least better than those around us, whether it be whole groups or as individuals. Some use the ministry as their standard. I have witnessed over the years that many people will take the minister's lowest standard and adopt it as their highest standard. If he can do that, I can do that. No. We have to use the standard of Scripture, the standard of God. Because every man that we know or have known will fall short of the standard of God. Be it Herbert Armstrong, John Reisenbaugh, Darrell Henson, or anybody else. And I don't mean to put myself in the company of Herbert Armstrong because I cannot carry his shoe latch. And I mean that. But any man you want to look to, and I use those of us who are in Church of the Great God because... Wherever we are, we tend to look at those who are the so-called leaders or are the leaders or whatever in our group. We can adopt whatever standard they have permitted themselves, which may not be the standard of God. Comparing ourselves, <coughs> excuse me, among ourselves is not wise. Because it causes us to fall short of the standard of God. James 1 gives us the lie to this. We read it in the last sermon. I'm not going back there and read it now for the sake of time. <clears throat> well, maybe I should go back there. Let's do. Let's go back to James 1. Read it right out of the Bible. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 25. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, he doesn't hide himself from what he reads there. But a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed, his life, his ways. If any man among you seem to be religious, has that veneer of righteousness, and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is futile, worthless, vain, an exercise in absolute futility, unless we do these things that we see in God's Word. Do we visit the widow and orphan? Do we really look out for our brother and become his keeper, his helper, his servant? Or do we just blow him off if he disagrees with us? Would we, let's face it, would we really not eat meat if it offended a brother for the rest of our life? How committed to being a servant to our brother are we? Now, that would be quite a change in most of our lives because we're carnivores. Most of us. Would we really do what Paul said he would do if it offended the conscience of a weak brother? What concessions can we make? What concessions would we make for each other? Now, Paul was willing to, to go that far and said so. And I think he meant it. There's a principle here that James is saying. We have to be willing to go that far for the widow and the orphan and for each other. Secondly, are we unspotted from the world? Or do we still have the spots of the world all over us like the measles? How far have we been transformed to the standard of this world to the standard of God? <clears throat> These two principles that James enumerates are God's standards of righteousness. If we don't measure up to them, our religion is vain, and it's only a form that denies his power to transform us, and we need to be scratching gravel to produce the fruit of his spirit and his righteousness, not that which we allow ourselves to do and still consider ourselves Christian. Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees who put on an outward show without producing good relationships with God and man, then we are self-righteous, and Christ will say, I don't know you. He must see himself in us as like kind if he is to marry us. Because kind begets kind. And he will not marry any that is not his own kind. This is the whole point of the prophecies that we've been examining. Turn to him with our whole heart. 
is our only righteous course. To accept his standard, not to run from the things we read in his Bible and walk off in self-pity or some other emotion, but that we pragmatically begin to change and we call on his power and his strength. Even to us, the self-righteous, the self-willed, the self-satisfied, despicable and despised Philadelphians turned Laodicean, he says, bottom line, to those that overcome, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Overcoming is the bottom line. He will accept none other. Those who will accept his standard and make the effort to rise to it and actually make the changes instead of settling for less. He that has an ear, a spiritual ear, that can hear these things that he's saying to the church, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have ears to hear? Are we hearing what Christ is saying here about us here at the end time? Do we recognize that in ourselves sometimes we accept a lower standard as a high standard of every word of God? We can't afford to do that, but we must overcome. We must have ears to hear and listen to what he says to the churches, all of us. We are all included because it is a common thing to all. Overcome, and I will grant to sit with you, or you to sit with me in my kingdom.